What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Ryan Taylor is the CEO of Dash Group. In this conversation, we discuss how to drive adoption of cryptocurrencies, how Venezuelans are using Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dash, and others, and why the user experience is so important in this nascent industry. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. All right, guys, before we continue with this episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Zen Ledger. For all you accountants and crypto investors out there trying to get through this bear market, Zen Ledger is a fast and simple tax reporting tool that saves you a ton of time and headache. Ain't nobody like dealing with their taxes, so let Zen Ledger do it for you. You can learn more by visiting zenledger.io slash off the chain to get your taxes done with ease. And as an off the chain listener, you'll save 20% of your 2018 tax forms. That's right. Listening to this podcast makes you smarter and saves you money. I got you. One more time. That's zenledger.io slash off the chain. Boom. Another ad. Total. Total sophisticated platform powers the blockchain economy with safe, simple, decentralized asset exchanges at the best price for traders, wallets, businesses, and other financial apps. That was a mouthful. They do a lot. Similar to using Kayak for finding the best flights, Total's platform aggregates decentralized exchanges and optimally routes trades for execution. They've got a simple API and it eliminates the need for any business partners to understand the fragmented decentralized exchange landscape and it integrates with many exchanges and protocols. Total. It looks like Total, but it's spelled Total. They got the whole misspell the name on purpose to sound cool. So Total is T-O-T-L-E dot com slash pomp. Go check it out. Total.com slash pomp. When you go, take a screenshot, tweet it to me. I'll drop you some fire emojis. They'll be happy. You'll be happy. I'll think I'm cool. It's a win-win-win all around. Total.com slash pomp. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, what's going on? I'm here with Ryan. Uh, we got a lot to cover. Um, let's start with your background because you come uh, with some traditional finance background. That's right. Um, I got an MBA here at Columbia uh, just a couple miles away and went to work for McKinsey in their financial services practice for about seven years. Um, left as an associate partner and joined a $20 billion hedge fund uh, here in the city, focused on the payment space. Uh, we had a private equity fund and a couple public markets funds. And so I kind of covered the gamut in terms of size mm-hmm. from kind of smaller, fast growing companies all the way through to the largest public market payments companies in the space. And uh, that's when I started to get exposed to Bitcoin and this crazy new idea. Absolutely. And, and uh, what was that first experience like? How did you first discover Bitcoin and crypto? Well, I first discovered it just through industry news articles and things that were uh, pointing out this very unique uh, payment method. Um, the thing that I identified about it right away is it has all these attributes that don't exist with any other payment method. And mm. when you combine unique attributes, uh, you can service markets that other payment types can't or can't do as well. And so I immediately identified that there was an opportunity. 
And then I immediately identified that there were like flaws with it too. Like from a payments expert perspective, I looked at it and said, well, there's some things I would do really differently if I could, um, just because, you know, some best practices are being ignored here. And so like I started exploring the space and exploring that there were actually more coins out there. Most of, most of them at the time, you know, 2013, there were copies and pastes of Bitcoin and they mm-hmm. changed a couple attributes behind the scenes. And, and so, um, you know, I didn't find a lot that was interesting, but there were a few interesting things out there that were doing something different. And I just started exploring. Got it. And, and what was there like one or two aspects of Bitcoin specifically that caught your eye in terms of this is different than uh, the fiat world or some of the P2P um, payment services that were out there? Well, obviously, the decentralized nature is the most obvious one. But um, the fact that it's a push technology, mm-hmm. you know, there isn't uh, someone that is taking my payment credentials and redeeming them. Um, instead, I am making a push out and and. I hold my payment credentials myself. Um, that's one aspect. It, it basically combines all of the attributes of cash with the ability to send that through the Internet. Um, you know, obviously, that isn't a perfect analogy because cash is perfectly anonymous and, and so on. But uh, it, it, it had that cash like quality, but the ability to send anywhere for incredibly cheap costs. So. Those were the things that really stood out to me. Got it. And then what are you doing now? So uh, right now I'm the CEO of Dash Core Group. That's a company, one of many companies that serve the Dash network. Um, Dash Core Group is uh, one of the more important ones, though, in, in that we design the protocol and uh, you know publish the open source software. We have some business development, some marketing function. Um but uh, we're, we're just one of many teams that are ser- serving the network. We're also unique in that we're network owned. We actually what issue- that, What's that mean? Yeah, we, we created a new legal structure. It's never been done before. Um, we basically created a trust. Uh, it's a New Zealand based trust. And then we issued all of the shares of Dash Core Group Inc. to the trust. Mm-hmm. And we named the trust beneficiaries as the masternode operators on the Dash network. And so they are. We have a fiduciary duty, a legal fiduciary duty back to the network that we serve. It also eliminates any profit motive. We as a company have no incentive to derive a profit. We just pay taxes on that. So Mm -hmm. um, we kind of draw from the network what we need to operate. And then uh, beyond that, um, uh, anything is is. uh, belongs to the network, basically. And so as you guys support the Dash network, what are some of the things that you guys have built or what do you guys do on like a day-to-day basis in terms of supporting that network? So obviously on the software front, we're designing the the protocol, we're yep. improving the software, we're um, you know adding new features and, and that type of thing. Um, on the business development front, we will uh, proactively reach out to exchanges or businesses or merchant service providers or whatever and, and educate them on the benefits of accepting Dash and, and really help with that adoption. We can offset costs uh, of an integration by helping to pay for it or providing an engineer that can come and support and answer questions and make it more efficient for them. Um, and we can do unique things like do promotions or uh, share in the cost of a conference space to hold an event or something with with one of our business partners. 
Um, and then the the last piece is kind of around marketing. Um, we can you know engage in uh, you know campaigns online or put up billboards or you know whatever uh, that would help with certain aspects of adoption. And that can be marketing to developers. It can be marketing to merchants. It can be marketing to uh, consumers. Whatever our objectives and, and strategy calls for. And let's talk about Dash Pay itself, right? So, kind of describe what it is, how it works, um, and where you guys are in building it right now. Yeah, so uh, Dash is a fork of Bitcoin, uh, the software, not not the blockchain. Um, and uh, over the years, we've built a number of features um, that differentiate us from that. Um, and most of these features rely on a master node network in order to facilitate the transactions or provide the infrastructure necessary to do it. And but, uh, before we go on, why is that important or what, what do you guys think the advantages to that is? Um, well, if you think about Bitcoin and the way that it, its economics work, uh, Satoshi designed it in a way where 100% of the revenue of the network, whatever you want to call that, uh, is allocated towards mining. Mm -hmm. No matter how much money that becomes, the protocol says all of it goes to mining. That's a bit like Visa saying, hey, no matter how much money we get, all of our revenue is going to be spent on security initiatives. We're going to ask our merchants to donate the servers we need to operate. We're going to ask developers to work for us for free or for merchants or somebody else to donate those people to come work on the project. Um, it, it, you know, if, if you think of it in those terms, it it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense that that no matter what, we're going to allocate all of our, our money towards this. What we did is, is we said we need infrastructure. If we're going to scale, if we're going to provide services to the entire world, you need to have world class infrastructure. The only way you're going to get that is by incentivizing it. And so we actually split our block reward. Um, the block reward goes 45 percent towards mining. That's one need for the network. 45 percent towards infrastructure. Those are rewards that go to the uh, masternode operators who service the network and they have minimum requirements that they have to meet and they have to you know have high uptime in order to get paid uh, they tend to be data center hosted uh, high availability high bandwidth um, and then the the last 10 percent goes towards what we call uh, our proposal system it's also been called a treasury um, and that's everything else anyone is free to put a proposal up to the dash network there's a, a submission fee uh, that keeps kind of riffraff out, but um, it's low. So anyone can put a proposal up to the network and the master node operators vote on that. And uh, the highest ranking proposals pay out as part of a monthly budget. And so that's where Dash Core Group gets its money from. We have to keep the network happy by developing things that are useful for the network, uh, by doing a good job with business development. And then we put our compensation proposal up to the network every month and we have to earn our money every month. And uh, there's dozens of teams across the globe that are doing the same thing. They're servicing local communities or they're uh, doing uh, marketing or some other type of, of activity for the network. And um, uh, all of that is, is funded and, and by the could blockchain. It, could a compensation proposal be rejected? Oh, absolutely. And yeah. does that happen pretty regularly? Uh, not our compensation. Our compensation proposals have been very successful. Mm -hmm. um, but others on the network? Others on the network have been defunded. Mm -hmm. um, 
both because the amount available changes in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, U.S. dollars, what it will fund. Um, you know, during the run in 2017, it became a huge number that was available on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. um, so as that number goes up and down, it fits or doesn't fit quite as much resources. So things have been defunded. Um, but by and large, a lot of the teams just <laughs> strap down and, and buckle down in terms of cost and, and continue to serve the network in, in maybe less of a capacity mm -hmm. um, when, when the price is lower. And so uh, if you do a good job, you, you, you are rewarded. And if you don't do a good job with the resources allocated towards you, you know, when when push comes to shove, the network is going to allocate its resources towards what's delivering the most value. Got it. And so with DashPay specifically, let, let's keep talking about kind of what you guys have built and, and how it works. And then we can get into kind of the pros and cons of that versus some other uh, payment services. Right. So uh, the first real big differentiator that we rolled out was private send. And that kind of labeled us a privacy centric coin. Um, we're more of a user experience centric coin um, and privacy is one aspect that we think is important. So we, we focused on that first. Um, and uh, the, the second feature that we rolled out was instant send. This is the ability to instantly confirm a transaction. 97% of transactions across the world still happen in the real world. Only 3% are online. In the United States, it's closer to 10% online, but we're an anomaly, right? Mm -hmm. Most transactions people need to make are at the point of sale. And you need instant one to two second confirmations in order for that to happen. With Bitcoin can take you know 10 minutes, it can take an hour. That's maybe usable in a restaurant scenario if you're willing to wait around after the meal for a little while. But even 10 seconds at a point of sale with a line behind you is unacceptable because I don't know if you've, it's ever taken 10 seconds for a credit card transaction to go through, but it becomes un, re, really uncomfortable after about four or five seconds that mm -hmm. something must be wrong. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you really need that speed to service most of the world's needs. So we, we focused on speed next. The third major component that we rolled out was the governance system. This is all of the voting that I described, the budget allocation. None of that existed prior to 2016. Um, and since then, we've been focused on a number of incremental uh, improvements. Um, we've increased our block size based on research that we've done on, on how much we can scale. Um, we have um, uh, rolled out a, a number of new features. One that just hit the network uh, this week is um, we uh, basically introduced new transaction types that allow data to be stored within the network. Um, and it's really foundational for what's coming. The two major things that are coming in, in the next few months, one is our version 0.14 release, which includes a technology called chain locks. And this does basically what it sounds like. It locks a, a, a block such that the network cannot be 51% attacked. How does that work? It relies on the masternode layer of the network. Each masternode, in order to upgrade your full node on the network to masternode status, you have to sign a message that proves ownership of a thousand dash. This limits the number of masternodes that any one person can control. Mm -hmm. And what it allows you to do is then with that layer of the network, it's, it's called Sybil attack proof mm -hmm. because no one can control that layer of the network themselves. 
at least not without buying up hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Dash, at which point you drive the price, you know, incredibly high. Um, so you can rely on that layer of the network to vote on things in a very uh, secure way. And what happens when a new block is created with this technology is that it basically pulls around 400 of the master nodes within about four to six seconds, you get a response back that at least the majority of them, around 60%, as soon as 60% sign that block, it's considered lock. And the entire network knows that if any competing chain or a secret chain being mined uh, you know, off, to, off in private ever were to be released after that, it's not to be honored. And so in, in, in this way, you can prevent any type of dishonest mining from occurring. And at that point, you don't even need to wait for a second block. The very mm -hmm. first block is sufficient. So even if a transaction isn't send instant send, um, you can still rely on it after a single block confirmation. And this protects um, you know, primarily exchanges, uh, but it really protects everyone who uses the network to improve the security not by buying more hash rate from the same six people, but from you know, providing an entirely new mechanism using software to provide a secondary level mm -hmm. of, of security. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the masternode staking um, and, and kind of the return, right? So one of the things that, uh, for those that don't know, um, staking is essentially the ability to buy a certain uh, percentage or, or number of tokens. You then, quote unquote, stake it on the network and in exchange you are given a return. Maybe walk through um, how that return is derived, right? So where does that um, actually come from? And then talk a little bit about how that return rate can fluctuate depending on a whole bunch of different factors. Sure. So um, basically, as, as I said earlier, about 45% of the block reward is allocated towards masternodes. And the way that it works is it's basically round robin. You, you start your masternode up, you start at the back, back of a payment queue. And by the time you work your way to the front of the queue, if you've been providing services for about seven, eight days, uh, you will be rewarded at the end of that with a, a payment you then drop to the back of the payment queue and start over. Mm -hmm. And so the returns are, are basically, how large is that block reward? Um, and, and how many masternodes are there? Because the more masternodes there are, the longer it takes to get through that queue, the less there are, the shorter that period of time. Okay. And so it's basically a free market. If there are very few masternodes, it's very attractive to become one and provide these services to the network. And if there are a lot of them, the return drops um, and there's less incentive and maybe a few drop out. And so in that way, we can basically hone in on between 4,000 to 5,000 masternodes uh, across the entire network. Got it. And the return right now, what do you, what does that look like over, let's say, the last six months? How has that fluctuated for, for people? Well, obviously, are we talking one, two percent. Are we talking two hundred percent? Right. What is that? Well, because you have to have a thousand dash in mm -hmm. order to uh, run and operate a master node. Um, if you ever move that money, by the way, your your node downgrades immediately. But you, that's primarily where your financial results are going to come from, is from the increase or decrease in the value of the dash token. Mm -hmm. In Dash terms, it currently pays between seven and eight percent on an annualized basis. Got it. So and for you're, your thousand and you're paid Dash in Dash, 
you're paid in dash, yep. correct? And so the thousand dash that you have to, uh, you know, uh, per, you know, stake your your master node with would return about seventy to eighty dash per year. Got it. Okay, and, and let's talk a little bit about um, that mechanism. Do you think that this is something where uh, this is being done for payments transactions, right? Yeah. Could this be applied to other types of transactions, say, um, in terms of the ability for staking and the validation of transactions, et cetera, uh, tokenized securities, uh, exchange of information, right? It does, not just the payments or the currencies, but other aspects that could be transacted on these blockchains? Yeah, I mean, you could think of issuing shares of stock and, you know, we've seen buildings get tokenized, right? Um, well, providing that infrastructure costs money. Mm-hmm. So a token could design into its system a reward for someone that's going to provide that type of services to this entity and get paid for it. And they could get paid in additional shares. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the new tokens could be created. Yes, it slightly dilutes everybody else. Uh, but then they're buying a service for that. And so uh, it, it's absolutely possible that that, that type of um, system could could be used in order to facilitate services to a network. I mean, that's what we're using it for. We're just mm-hmm. using it in a payments context. But these services are needed by all of these networks, right? Absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh us versus them mentality, right? So kind of across crypto, I think there's this tribalism that goes on. Um, it's the, you know, Bitcoin maximalist versus the world, or it's some other chain versus, you know, another project. Um, it's also crypto versus financial services. Oh, for sure. I'm yeah. down, I'm down with that fight for sure. <laughs> what, uh, do you think this stuff's good for crypto, bad for crypto, somewhere in between? What's your take on it? Uh, well, I think there's some good and some bad that right, comes let, from it. Let's go through the, the good first and then we can go through the bad. I think the good is it really creates uh, a sense of unity for a community. It, mm-hmm. it really bonds people together that share a common belief and, and have a common strategy. And so it allows strategies to move forward and progress. Um, I think it's good in that uh, it, uh, it really forces people to... Um, you know, look at each other's projects and and evaluate them and and evaluate themselves um, if they're honest with themselves. Uh, there, there's a healthy way to respond to criticism and there's mm-hmm. an unhealthy way. And I think there's a lot of unhealthy responses. But if you take criticisms to heart and really analyze them, they can actually help you. Uh, the bad is I think it just creates a massive amount of confusion in the marketplace because people don't know exactly, you know, how this stuff works yet they don't have a mental framework for it and they're struggling with it and they hear a shouting match and i think they give up and they're just like this is too much for me i i don't know Mm -hmm. but do you think that the community should uh coddle those people and like be overly generous in trying to accept them or do you think it's a filtering mechanism where um all of that uh attrition of ideas and and kind of combative intellectual olympics that goes on uh those new people either are cut out for that or they're not and therefore if they're not that I agree with you that they kind of back up, throw their hands up and say, you know, this isn't for me. Uh, but as that stuff kind of settles down and we've got a clearer picture of, hey, here is what is going to work, what's not going to work, et cetera, then they'll return and come back into the community when that stuff's not going on. Well, I, I think that 
So my own point of view on this whole thing is that any maximalist, whatever your coin is, it, I, that's not going to happen. Like, I'm not a Dash maximalist. I don't think Dash is going to dominate every aspect. Why? Uh, number one, businesses, just go talk to businesses. Talk to any business and say, hey, would you rely on a single network to provide your 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 payments? Well, the networks have hard forks. They have downtime. They have security problems. They have other issues from time to time. Bitcoin never goes down. Yeah. Everybody knows that. that that's, my, uh, that's my one thing. Bitcoin never goes down. <laughs> but it has gone through forks. Yeah, of it course. has gone through periods where, okay, we're going to shut down services for a little while for security purposes, for stability, and so on. And so w- when those things occur, they need a backup plan. There, there needs to be an alternative. So they're, they're never going to sign up for just one. Just Talk to businesses. That's not going to happen. Uh, the second thing is you can't be all things to all people. You can't be both the fastest and the most private. And, the, you know, like there are different needs in the marketplace. You even see this with a product as generic as credit cards. Visa and American Express and Diners Club all compete in very different ways. And you're going to see the same thing in this ecosystem. Smart contracts are not the same thing as what Bitcoin is providing, is not the same thing as what Dash is providing. And they're going to fill needs differently. And when you have a a market like that, it's necessary that there's more than one because you can't be all things to all people. There are fundamental trade-offs in the design choices you're making between these various products. Um, Somebody said that uh, Visa, MasterCard, et cetera, they're like mobs. Right. Kind of like mafias that are all fighting with each other, uh, which is very similar to crypto in that these different tribes are very combative with each other to some degree. Um, and uh, and the us versus them mentality is one thing, but also the them mentality, right? The belief, like the people who buy into a single type of tribe or a single type of thought process. Uh, I don't know if you know who uh, Ken Bozak is. Oh, uh, yeah. He's got everybody a, knows who he, Ken Bozak is. He's got a dash tattoo. Like yeah. he, he's all in. The old, the old branding too. Really? Yeah. So, so like what, what's your take on, you know, this thing where this is technology we're talking about, right? But people get, um, very much, uh, it's a belief system, right? Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's the understanding that this piece of technology can have X, Y, Z impact on the world. Uh, it has some pros, it has some cons, but the tribalism around it feels like it's almost necessary to some degree in order to make some of this stuff successful? Or do you think that we could be successful without that type of tribalism, without that type of fanatical um, you know, interest in some of these projects? Well, I, I don't think the question matters because okay. at the end of the day, people are going to act in their own self-interest and these projects by and large are competing with each other. Um, Even if they're not competing for a core audience, their core audiences may be different, but there's always overlap between these projects. Um, There's overlap between what Bitcoin does and Ethereum does. There's overlap between what Ethereum does and, um, you know, Dash does or whatever. Like there there are some areas in which they can and and should compete. And Mm -hmm. so in an environment like that, there is going to be, I think, some of this. And and so why ask the question, well, could it be better if they didn't? Well, that, that isn't realistic to, to have happen. Now, how professional are you when you're doing this? Like, 
crypto Twitter is just, you know, it, it, it's easy when you're not facing someone face to face to just be a jerk. Right. And, and that's what you see online in not just in crypto, but in general, you know, you go to just about any forum somewhere and people are bashing on each other left and right. They would never behave that way in I, real life. I, I love I, I've never actually talked about this uh, on here, but I meet people all the time who come up to me and they're like, hey, man, great to meet you. Uh, yeah, I know sometimes I'm an asshole to you on the Internet. Yeah. And I don't know who they are. Right. Like I don't I, they've got an anonymous account or something. So I don't make the connection like this person is that account uh, and they kind of out themselves. Yeah. And then I, and then I always laugh and I'm like, I, I think I should be mad at you, but like I really don't care. Yeah. Um, but but it's so funny how you have to take anything online with a giant grain of well, salt. Well, even they have an anonymous account that I can't associate with them, but it's like they they personally feel guilty when they meet you in person and they literally like, like, rat oh, them, they rat oh, themselves wait, out. You're a human being. Yeah, they rat I'm themselves sorry out. I treated a human being <laughs> that way. Yeah. I I, uh, I I tend to encourage it. I, I think um, it is not for the faint of heart. But uh, there is a level of uh, discourse that brings about um, like an attrition of ideas where the best ideas will win and the best implementations will win, right? Uh, those are two different things, right? So just because you have the best idea doesn't mean you get to win the implementation war. Yeah. Um, and if you have the best implementation, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have the best idea either. Yeah. Um, but each one of those things is important and has its own place. Uh, so, so it's very interesting how um, Twitter specifically has evolved. And then if you move to something like a Telegram, um, you know, there's one specific Telegram channel that I'm in uh, that's a private chat, lots of people that you probably know, um, and then somebody will, quote unquote, fork the channel, and they'll go start their own, and they'll drop the invite link back in the first channel. And so, I don't know, there's been six or seven that I've you know put myself in at this point, uh, and it's the same people, but they are organizing themselves around different topics. So one is, you know, let's talk all about Bitcoin. One is, let's talk about everything. One is, let's talk about, um, you know, unique aspects of certain cryptos. One is, let's do AMAs here, right? That type of stuff. That's great because then you get to self-select into the topics you find most interesting. Oh, I find it annoying because now I got to check them all. <laughs> <laughs> um, let, let's talk a little bit more about uh, businesses and crypto, right? Yeah. So. Um, Today, recently, uh, I, I posted um, this Q&A with uh, somebody on the ground in Venezuela, and their whole thing was, uh, look, obviously, the Bluviar is absolutely ruined, right? I think the stat that they shared was it's lost 98% of its value since August of last year, yeah. which is incredible, right? It's, it's, it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around that. like 98% in seven months, yeah. right? Then... They're like, look, we'd love to go get U.S. dollars. Well, it's either really hard to get U.S. dollars because there's a process that's super long and arduous. Uh, two, they're just not available. Or three, there's actually some security issues, right, yeah. in terms of going and getting this. Uh, and then you've got to worry if you're holding U.S. dollars in cash, they can be confiscated. Yeah. So there's a bunch of issues with it. And so Bitcoin, uh, along with some other uh, cryptocurrencies, but Bitcoin specifically has become this um, you know, new thing. And at first it was uh, for transactions, um, you know, kind of a peer-to-peer -peer way. Then it uh, sounds like it's become more of like a savings and potential um, wealth driving uh, asset. And so people are starting to understand it more. And one of the questions I asked was, well, are businesses using this stuff, right? Will they accept it? And it sounds like there's 
you know, kind of low to single digit uh, thousands of businesses that if you look at some of these websites, et cetera, uh, that have said, yes, we will accept it. Now, are they actually accepting it on the ground? A little bit harder to tell, but it does feel like um, they're not only just accepting Bitcoin, they're accepting, you know, maybe six or seven different cryptocurrencies. I think Dash is one of them in many Mm -hmm. areas. Uh, And also they are, uh, they're simply saying, I want to engage in commerce uh, I have something to sell. You as the consumer, when you show up, I will take U.S. dollars, Boliviar, Bitcoin, seashells, you know, rocks, wh- whatever you come with, we will take. Yeah. Um, and, and so they're basically listing a pretty long list of things that they will accept as currency for their goods or services. Do you think that that is sustainable where like as more and more of these payment services, cryptocurrencies, fiat currencies, et cetera, uh, get created and become popular in different parts of the world, retailers, either online or offline, will just say, here's the list of 42 things I accept? Or do you think there has to be some consolidation um, among all of those different options? There, there is natural consolidation. Okay, and explain that. Yeah, we, we see this in other payment categories where it, it just becomes very complicated to try to integrate that many different payment types. Um, and consumers get confused by it. When you start to look like a NASCAR page, particularly <laughs> online, if you reach the checkout page and it looks like NASCAR, conversion rates on that just drop like through the floor. Yeah, because so it was like paralysis by analysis type stuff where yeah. basically you give people too many options. You give people too many options and they start to get confused. Mm-hmm. Uh, it creates a bad user experience, basically. And you, you have to sift through all these different payment types to find the one that you're looking for. Um, in the end, it tends to consolidate down to a few that matter. They accept credit cards, PayPal, maybe one other one, uh, potentially a bank transfer or something yep. like that. Yeah, yeah, of course. But they don't want to cover the universe. They want to cover what 99% of their customers are going to be able to pay with. Beyond that, you start to look like the NASCAR page, your conversion rate goes down and you actually lose sales. So there's a natural equilibrium there with online transactions. And the same can be said for in, in store. There's two reasons for it. One is, Uh, You have to train your employees on the various payment types and uh, they have to be aware that they accept it. If nobody walks in your store to pay with, I don't know, Zcash for, you know, six months Mm -hmm. and then someone walks in. Oh, I don't think we take that. There's a new employee that wasn't trained on it. They don't know how to take it. Um, and, And so you have to have a certain number of transactions even to maintain your spot in in the merchant. And so they have a tendency to focus on the ones that are doing the best, the ones that are accepted the most places. And then consumers do the same thing. They gravitate towards the ones that they can actually use. If there's only two stores in town that accept a certain payment type, I don't want to complicate my life. They already take the ones that I have to use everywhere else. So why would I do this? Mm -hmm. There has to be a really compelling reason for me to behave that way. And so I think there is a natural consolidation. I think it'll end up somewhere around where credit cards are. There's a Visa, a MasterCard, American Express. Some places take Discover. Few places take, you know, Diners Club. It just, it what really is Diners Club? Cl- I don't even know what that is. It, it's a, it was the first credit card. It oh, was really? launched in the 1950s here in New York City uh, and San Francisco, I think. I, yep. And um, they focused on high-end restaurants. And uh, the idea was simple. I walk into the restaurant, I 
order my meal and I'm going to pay for it in a monthly bill at the end. And uh. Uh, and so that that was the advent of the credit card. It still exists and there are still users for it. But really. Um, but like I said, it really tails off after the top three or four. There are also regional differences. You mm-hmm. go to Japan, they have a, another credit card network that is dominant there. Um, you go to China, it's China Union Pay. And, and so, you know, depending on where you are in the world, it may be a slightly different mix, but there's definitely going to be some level of consolidation, particularly around the payment use case. Now, there may be thousands of tokens that do all kinds of other stuff, but when it comes to pure play payments, I don't think there's going to be a lot. Got it. Anybody who can hook me up with a Diners Club card, tweet at me. I'm trying to get one of those. That, that sounds like something I need to have for sure to talk about. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, Dash. And, and I want to flip it around. I think most people probably ask you about all of the good aspects and the benefits, et cetera. If there's one thing that you guys are wrong about in the approach that you take, right? Because all of these different chains take different approaches. And so um, I think that everyone has a view on the world of, oh, there's pros and cons to certain aspects uh, that trade off, right? So let's say that Bitcoin is um, overly rotated in um, some people's minds on security. So people say, hey, look, you can have security with other features maybe, right? What would be the aspect that you have the least confidence in in your guys' approach, right? What would be the thing that if you're wrong about something, this is what we're most likely wrong about? Um, I... uh... I, I mean, love I want to ask questions and people have to think. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, our approach to this has been what works in payments mm-hmm. and let's apply those lessons here. Mm-hmm. And so I really believe that all of the lessons that we're bringing that change things um, are positive changes or we wouldn't be doing them. Um, I'd say that. But is there something where you're like. I think this is the right decision, but I have 70% confidence in that. And so if if something is going to be wrong, it's the thing that I have 70% confidence in versus the you know the other 10 things I have 100% confidence in. Well, I, I think one of the things that I don't like about the current system is its rigidity. I criticized Bitcoin for allocating 100% to uh, mining and mining only and not rewarding other valuable activities that add value to the network. Well, right now we have a very rigid system. It's 45, 45 and 10 to those, you know, to mining, to infrastructure and to uh, the proposal system. The chances that that is absolutely ideal is zero. It's just zero. The network should have the ability, in my opinion, to reallocate that as conditions change. For example, if the price of Dash skyrockets, do you still need to allocate 45% towards mining? Or can more of that go into the treasury and help with adoption and help with growth and help with marketing and help, you know, just help the coin to grow? And I, I, I think the answer is we need to have some level of flexibility there. It's good enough for now. Like it, it provides what we need to achieve our goals in the near term. But I think longer term, I'd like to see a system that is more market based that or, or that the network itself decides on and can reallocate as conditions change. And so if we're having a hard time attracting enough masternodes to service the network, we could allocate more rewards towards masternodes. If, the, uh, if there's a lot of great proposals out there that are going unfunded, we could allocate more towards proposal funding. If the network security is an issue, we could allocate more towards mining or something like that. Got it. And then 
there's a low probability, probably single digits probability at this point, um, that Bitcoin could become the global reserve currency. If that was to happen, what would the impact on Dash be? Um, I don't think it would be a major one for two reasons. One, okay. what I described earlier about the fact that I think there's going to be more than one network. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm hoping that Dash will be one of those. Um, the second aspect is that um, those are really different functions. Uh, global reserve currency implies certain attributes. Um, and being a day-to-day -day payment method for coffee implies very different attributes. Um, so if I'm going to focus on day-to-day -day payments, micropayments, on you know everyday people, peer-to-peer -peer transactions, buying groceries, that type of thing, it implies a different user experience. It implies a, a very different uh, set of economics, um, all of it. And so I, I just think that uh, we're going to pursue our strategy regardless of what other people are doing. And I, I think that we're still going to make optimal choices. I think that's fair. Um, what do you think that the other payment services in crypto, so it doesn't have to be networks, it could be other for-profit centralized companies, et cetera. What do you think they're missing that if they understood would drastically improve their businesses? Is there like one common theme where you think a lot of people who maybe don't have payment experience, don't come from the traditional finance world, there's something that they either believe that is probably not true or something that they don't understand that if they did, it would make them much better? One of the things I see touted a lot is how much money like cryptocurrencies can save in transaction fees. Mm -hmm. And what they don't understand when they're saying that is merchants don't care. They tell you they care. They, if you survey merchants, they complain about the fees first, right? When, when it comes to credit cards or whatever. And people think, well, if I offer this service with lower fees, they'll come flocking to me, right? And that just isn't what their priority is. Priority number one is, are you bringing me more sales? If you're bringing me new customers, that is something I care about. That's mm -hmm. sales I otherwise wouldn't get. The second is, are you improving my conversion rate on the customers that I am getting? So if you integrate a technology and it actually lowers your conversion rate, you're, you're not gonna like that very much. So I want a high conversion rate from someone who puts something in their cart to actually checking out with it. Mm -hmm. The third thing they care about is how easy is it to integrate? Because the costs aren't just the fees. The costs are, how difficult is this to maintain? How difficult is it for my programmers to build something on top of it? You need to be API-based. You need to have uh, software development kits that make it easy. Those types of things need to be in place if you expect them to go internally and say, okay, give me a quote. How much is this gonna cost to add to all of my point of sale terminals? Oh, it's gonna cost a boatload of money? Mm, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Oh, this other alternative is you know, easier to integrate. This is how Stripe did so well, right? Mm -hmm. They made integration super easy. Their fees are not the best in the industry. Mm -hmm. They're quite high actually, but they allowed new companies to get to market really quickly with new products and services and integrate payments real fast. And that was a competitive advantage. And the fourth, fourth thing they care about is the cost. And you see people walking in like advocates of, digital currencies walking into businesses and talking about costs first. And it just doesn't work. They why, don't care. Why do you think that they say 
fees is the biggest issue, but that's not actually in practice. Like, like what do you think is the disconnect between those two? Because it's the thing that, that is in their face every month when they're facing the bill. An integration is a once every five year thing. Mm-hmm. And they don't think about it. It's not top of mind. But when they actually go to get the quote and then do the business analysis on it and figure out, oh, this is going to cost me a boatload of money. Okay, I'll stick with these fees that I hate. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think it's just the thing that is top of mind for them. Um, A lot of them don't realize the impact on the conversion rates and new customers um, until it happens. And then they do A-B testing on their website or something and discover that, crap, I'm, I'm doing pretty poorly with this new payment, and they remove it. And so you, you see this a lot with like new emerging payment types. Um, there are paths to overcome all of this. PayPal did it. Credit cards have done it. You know, there, there are paths to overcome all of these these deficiencies. But you have to be very thoughtful about the way that it happens. And if you're not a payments expert, you aren't going to know, well, what are the steps that I should go through? And do you think that crypto can get to the point where everyone is using it and it's not like, hey, I have a credit card that's backed by crypto, but it is actually crypto itself is the native currency that is used at point of sale in a physical location, whether it's QR codes or you know some other format. Um, can we get to that spot or do you think there's got to be integration with the legacy system? It's already happening, but my hypothesis is it's going to happen in developing countries first. Um, Dash has a couple different teams working on the ground uh, in Venezuela. Um, They're not Dash core group teams, but we certainly support. And uh, they've managed to sign up between 2,500 and 3,000 merchants, primarily around Caracas. Mm -hmm. The merchants don't even cash it out. Uh, They don't want to, right? Um, And they they then reuse those funds. It's usually small mom and pops, but we're starting to get corporate customers as well. I saw a report. Was this true or not that KFC is using it? Uh, KFC is not currently using it. Um, We, uh, there was a leak. Got it. Basically, and uh, an announcement went out prematurely on a intention to test it. Got it. Uh, but they had, you know, they, KFC denied it. Um, and uh, what w- we followed the following week with Church's Chicken, which was an actual like integration. They're actually using it. They're actually using it. And this this was our first corporate level deal where, you know, we managed to get integrated across all of the restaurants all at one time. And uh, they, they have 13 locations across the country. And, and I believe they had two different point of sale systems. So we initially launched with 10 of the 13. But uh, the intention is to, is to go to all locations. Got it. Uh, complete side note, because we're talking about chicken now. Um, I, I recently saw, uh, what, what's, the, uh, what's the, sh- uh, the chef Guy Fiore or something like oh, that? Yeah, yeah. He's got a new chicken uh, place called Guy's Chicken. And it's a chicken with some sunglasses on. And I was like, that guy's going to blow that up for sure. So you got to go get them. All right. Uh, before uh, before I finish up, uh, I do rapid fire. Uh, nobody ever goes rapid, though, which I don't know why I call it keep on rapid fire. Um, what do you think is the most important company in crypto? I can't can say you, you can't can, say Dash. No, no, I can't. Uh, how, how do you expect anyone to answer a question like that? This is not like. 
Hey, what's your favorite color? No, you gotta you gotta answer uh, one these, company. These require wanna, thinking. I, no, no, no. I want to know what comes top of mind. Um, most important is there's so many different aspects, but I'll just throw one out there. Galaxy seems to be building a lot of stuff and having their hands in a lot of different Galaxy projects. Digital. Yeah. Okay. Uh, because you think that they're involved in so much makes them a crucial part. Yeah, it seems like they are taking an active role in shaping all of it, too. And I don't think people realize what they've built. They've built all kinds of capabilities that I that are, are mind-blowing. They're basically creating an entire uh, model of financial services across the spectrum. Um, and they're investing in the companies that are building out other pieces as well. And so it seems like they really have their hands in a lot. And I don't think people really realize how how much they've built. Yeah, they, they have probably pages of just short descriptions of the businesses or functionalities that they've built. And none of it is consumer facing. So you and I as consumers never even notice it. It's not newspaper headlines, but they're building a lot. Novogratz is coming on the podcast, so we'll see. We're gonna, I'm going to quiz the heck out of him. He's got a you lot. Should. He's got a lot of stuff that we got to talk about. So, uh, so that's a good answer. Um, what is the one regulation that you would change or improve if you could? Uh, tax handling of, of crypto. Of crypto, uh, at least introduce that $600 uh, exemption for purchases because it really makes it unusable mm-hmm. for someone. To use it at scale and expect not to like end up in hot water, and it's pretty ridiculous. This is this can bring incredible efficiencies to the economy if it's allowed to proliferate. Um, David Schweikert, the one who introduced that, is actually a, a Arizona representative, and uh, our offices are about hundred feet outside of his district, but he's he's. He's friendly with us and, and we've had conversations with him about priorities around, you know, uh, cryptocurrency. And I, I'd love to see that eradicated. Is he one of the people who reported uh, holding crypto? Uh, yeah, he's right. Yeah. He's an advocate. He's, okay. he's a really big advocate of cryptocurrency. And he he does a lot of the leadership around the blockchain caucus. Mm-hmm. And, and what they do is they educate the lawmakers on on the technology, on what its implications are and what's happening in other countries and that type of thing. Um, because the United States is really falling behind when it comes to this stuff. The, the real innovation is happening in other countries because they're not comfortable doing it here. So you got to ask him a question for me. I'm, I want to know, does, uh, does Trump have Bitcoin? <laughs> uh, seriously, think yeah. about it. He, he's out tweeting all the time about the Federal Reserve and, and all this stuff. Yeah. And he's obviously very cognizant of the strength of the U.S. dollar, etc. Suppose he's got a lot of money. Yeah. One Bitcoin? A, a thousand, right? I mean, but I'm just super interested. I know people have talked to him about it. Uh, and he was, I think, generally warm about like, like he wasn't, we should ban that, right? Yeah. So like I look at that as warm if you're the president of the United States and you get told what this is and you don't want to ban it immediately. Um, but I'm interested if he personally holds any. Because the I think it's the con the Congress members, and I think maybe senators as well, not have to uh, publicly disclose what their crypto holdings are, uh, but the president doesn't. Yeah. So, well, yeah, the president doesn't have to do a lot of things. <laughs> what um, What's the most important book you've ever read? Most important? Important, not favorite, important. Um, Letters from My Father. What is that? It's a book 
that a father wrote to a, a chapter on different topics to um, his son, or it's called Letter, Letters to My Son. That's oh, what it's to my called. Son. Okay. And uh, it's on topics ranging from war to uh, teenage years, love, uh, all, all kinds of different topics. And it, it really offered a very caring and like uh, good way to think about the world way to treat other people, um, way to hold yourself to certain standards and so on. And it's a short book, but it had a lot of impact on me when I was young. My mother bought it for me and gave it to me. And it was such a gift because, you you know, I was a teenager. I had teenage angst, but it was a way to get through to me and, and really shape my worldview in a way that was non-confrontational. Nobody wants to sit and talk about sex or love or whatever with their mom. Right. And so it, it was, a, it was a good way to kind of shape my worldview on, on what it means to be a human being and the various life stages. It even goes into aging mm -hmm. and it causes you to think way ahead of where you are today and the situations you may face in the future and kind of prepares you with kind of a mental framework around them. It, it's a, it, if I were to read it again today, it would probably seem very, um, basic. Mm -hmm. um, but if you appreciate it for what it is, that it's aimed at the someone right going through from childhood to adulthood, it, it really did a, a, a really good job of shaping that. And the reason they wrote the book was in case they died. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Aliens, real or not? Uh, absolutely real. Really? Oh, yeah. Like 100% or 99%? 100%. Now, whether or not... 100%. I, the, I just do the math, right? Like, All right. What, no, what is no the one, math that you use to get there? I mean, we've only been able to see our immediate neighborhood within one arm of our galaxy. And we've already found many possible habitable worlds. Um, There's a thousand planets. There's 1,000 planets now. Wild. It so, but if you multiply this out over just our galaxy, across billions and billions of stars, um, and now multiply that by, I God, I don't even know the number of galaxies. Our minds are incapable of grasping the vastness of the universe, and we don't even know where the universe ends because there is a horizon beyond which we can never see because space itself is expanding and the amount of expansion between us and those points is faster than the speed of light could ever overtake and so there are areas that we can't even see we don't even know how big the universe is as a result so my, my I, i've talked about this before but the uh, one of my favorite things is um to fly from new york to singapore directs like 19 hours right to go from earth to Saturn, Jupiter, etc., would take so long that a human would die before they got there, mm -hmm. right? And so there's this whole uh, theory in um, astrophysics, etc., right now where they want to put two humans in a spaceship, send them, have them have a child in the spaceship, train that child, and then they'll die, and then that child will eventually get there and figure yeah. out what's going on or whatever, right? So that's just, you know, what, 
four or five planets away. We're not even talking about, you know, how the, the universe as you're describing in terms of how vast it actually is. Yeah. And, you know, high school does us a huge disservice by showing us this book with these neat planets right next to each other. I, I When I was a kid, I... I took a measuring tape and I figured out, okay, th- this is so far from the sun. I put a, a golf ball for the sun. I was an idiot. And then tried to map out where everything was in relation to it. And I was like down the block, like trying to figure out where, you know, even Jupiter was, let mm-hmm. alone like some of the really far out P- planets. Pluto, uh, when I was a kid, was a planet. Yeah. And it went to not being a planet. And now I think it's back to being a planet again. And I feel like we're kind of just like really screwing with them. But anyone who lives on Pluto is real pissed at us right now. Well, I I tell you, there, there could be people living there, there. There could be entities living on Pluto because below the surface, it's active. Do, do you think that the aliens, if they do exist, are human-like and intelligent and uh, what we would consider as an animal or, or a human, right? So, so kind of has certain characteristics versus it's like living organisms that look more like viruses or worms. This is where my confidence starts to oh. drop because, you know, the combination of things you need to develop intelligence and then not kill yourselves is – Questionable, right? I, I I don't even know if humans are going to be around in a couple hundred years because we might may destroy everything. I you know, so if it if it exists, perhaps it's always short lived and it only exists for a few centuries or something. But I I don't know. I that's where I I don't think we have enough data. I I just the data to me points to life definitely exists somewhere. It's just too big. Like you you can't even begin to wrap your head around how big it is. So this is this is my new wild space theory. Uh, have you ever read the book uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel? No. Oh, have to read it. Pro- probably, I actually probably think that's the most important book that I've ever read. Um, I don't think I've ever admitted that. Uh, but what it basically does, it goes back to the beginning of time and it tracks how weaponry, so guns, germs and medicine, right, uh, and steal the industrialization of, of uh, societies are the three major factors for who got ahead and who didn't, right? Mm-hmm. So if you think of if you had better weapons, if you had better medicine, and if you had better technology, industrialization, et cetera, you basically are now a developed world and you dominate the world compared to countries that didn't. And in the very beginning or near the beginning of the book, it talks about, um, I, I might get this wrong, but I think it's like New Zealand, Australia, somewhere somewhere in the South Pacific like that. Um, there's basically uh, a couple of islands and they could literally see the other island, but they didn't know if there's people there. They didn't know it, you know, but they could see it. And uh, one island ended up conquering the other island. But the reason why they did that was the first island figured out how to build boats. And they could go to the other island, attack, steal things, and then bring it back to their island. And the fact that they had mobility between the two islands. They, they had boats and the other side didn't understand how to build the boats. One, nation, you know, one island won and the other didn't. I think that space is the exact same. So if you think about Earth as one island and there is other intelligent life on the other island, whoever figures out mobility first, right, can actually travel back and forth, game over, they win. And so, like, it's just history repeating itself. It's just who's going to figure out how to do that. Well, (laughs) 
hopefully for those we, of you that are if, just listening to this, I wish is, you could see his face right now. If that is true, I certainly hope we develop mobility first. Look, if Elon doesn't end up in jail with uh, with the SEC, then uh, he may figure it out. But uh, you know what? If you're intelligent enough to do mobility between planets, can't you be sophisticated enough to like learn to live together? No, 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 no. Intelligent life is built on combat for sure, whether we like it or not, right? It's just if you think about uh, at every stage in history, there is, whether it's animals or humans, right? So all kind of all different levels of intelligent life, it is combative in nature, right? It's like the, what's the um, uh, circle of life, Lion King type stuff, right? Is that is how uh, different species interact with each other. It's just... That's how it is. So do you carry this over into your philosophy around crypto? Oh, yeah, for sure. It, I, I think that um, crypto is probably even more combative in the sense that uh, think of the Bitcoin blockchain, for example. It is attacked thousands of times a day, right, for a decade at this point. And other chains, the same thing. And so... They are literally hardened over time from all of these attacks. And some immediately fail, right, because the attacks are successful. Uh, and the other ones end up, uh, again, through attrition, being super secure, right, super defend uh, or able to defend themselves. And so I think um, what is interesting about crypto that I think a lot about is uh, take um, Bitcoin, because it's just the one I've thought the most about. Bitcoin is the one weapon that the people have that if it falls in the hands of the government can't be used against them. Right. And the reason why I say that is today governments have the ability to print money. They use inflation and they use fiat currencies to do a whole bunch of shit. Mm -hmm. Right. And control people with debt and all all the stuff that if you're into crypto and been around for enough time, you've figured out that that's what a lot of people believe. Bitcoin is a weapon against that. Right. It's deflationary. It's not controlled by a state. It's unseizable. It's uncensorable, et cetera. Or maybe it's a shield. Yeah, well, just the point is that, like, you can basically fight back, whether it's a shield or a weapon, right? Basically, mm-hmm. it's a way to fight back against that world. And every other weapon that we've come across that I can think of, if it falls in the hands of the opponent, right, or, or like, let's say, a nation yeah. state, they can use it against you, mm-hmm. right? So guns, knives, tanks, you know, all this stuff. Bitcoin is a nonviolent weapon. And so in that case, when it falls into the hands of somebody else— they can um, leverage the benefit of it, mm-hmm. but they can't actually use it against you. Yeah. Right. And I think that's a really interesting thing where if you take some of the, um, you know, take those two islands, for example, that type of stuff, and you apply what's going on in crypto, um, it's an evolution of how some of this stuff plays out. But I think it's, uh, I think it's super interesting. Yeah. What one question do you have? For you. You told me, that you, by the way, he told me that he came prepared with his question. So I'm I scared. Did. Yeah. Um, no, it, it's prepared. actually surprisingly similar to the question that you asked me, but right. maybe a little bit of a twist, which is um, as an investor, you always build your investment hypothesis on a set of facts and a set of assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you tweet out, you know, long Bitcoin, short bankers. It, it implies certain things, right? It implies... Uh, certain outcomes, it implies uh, certain things that are going to happen in the future. But that's built on a set of facts that you've analyzed and then a set of assumptions that you've made about how this is likely to play out. What is the one assumption that 
is included in your hypothesis that you have the least confidence in that if this goes wrong, my hypothesis isn't going to play out the way that I thought it would. Uh, I'm going to switch the question just a little bit. What is the one thing that's in my thesis that if it is wrong, the thesis doesn't play out? Uh, and it would be the most catastrophic is how I'm going to answer it. Uh, Bitcoin by far. Um, I People probably don't understand how much I think about the risk and how high of a probability that I place on Bitcoin not being successful. Right. So everyone's like, oh, you really believe in this stuff, whatever. Um, I would say that it is definitely still more probable that Bitcoin fails than succeeds. I would say that um, the quote unquote threats to Bitcoin are probably not the things that people usually think about. Like, I'm not worried about 51% attack, right? Yeah. I think that the, the incentive structure, the way that the system's built, like, I think we're pretty good there. Um, I'm not worried about nation states banning it, right? That type of stuff. I worry about things like uh, software bugs, right? Uh, I worry about things like the psychological um, understanding and the, uh, the conversation around Bitcoin, right? So if all of a sudden the narrative takes place that uh, Bitcoin doesn't work or Bitcoin is how you lose money or that type of stuff, uh, it becomes exponentially more hard for it to become the global reserve currency. So I think about that type of stuff. Um, and then on top of that, if Bitcoin itself doesn't work, then um, a lot of the tokenized security stuff, I think, just becomes harder. It doesn't become impossible. I think it's got some kind of de-risking by diversification on different chains and things like that. Um, but I do think that most of that stuff is going to get built on the Bitcoin network. Uh, and so I think that becomes more difficult. Now, that brings the question of why do I still believe in it, engage in it, you know, stake my reputation on it, et cetera. And it's because um, the risk reward here yeah. is worth it, right? It is a high it is a high likelihood that it doesn't work and we're quote unquote wrong. But if we are right, the upside dwarfs the risk. Yeah. And so it is a fair, at least in my opinion, fairly rational evaluation of risk reward where you're talking about the potential for something that might happen once every couple of thousands of years in terms yeah. of a new quote unquote technology becoming the global reserve currency or just a mass adopted globally accepted currency. It doesn't even have to be the global reserve, just a, a mass adopted currency. Um, and so like, let's just put it's not even just Bitcoin, it's just cryptocurrencies in general. If that's a once in every 5,000 years, like gold, for example, um, if that's a once in 5,000 year opportunity, you have to take it, right? Yeah. Because the payoff is tens of trillions, if not 100 plus trillion dollars worth of value creation. And we're talking about something that's at 100 billion today, yeah. right? And, and so it's just, I think that's really how I think about the risk reward trade off. And then uh, I fully am aware that if I am wrong, um, you know, for me specifically, the thing that cracks me about Twitter, uh, people are like, ah, oh, you don't believe what you say. I'm like, I don't think people understand the position that I will be in if I am wrong. Right. Yeah. I, I have more skin in the game than pretty much anyone I know. Um, and it's because it is a very binary outcome. But the binary outcome is uh, at such extreme ends of the spectrum yeah. that to me, it's worth it. And I'll caveat it with given my age. Yeah. If I was 50. Yeah, you couldn't I wouldn't be doing risk. this. Right. Yeah. But at 30, you can afford to recover. I'll take yeah. a shot. Yep. Uh what aspect do you think you're most overconfident? 
that anybody gives a shit about this stuff. <laughs> um, no, it's just, look, what is it? 40 million, I think it's 40 million people in the world have ever uh, bought or sold crypto. I think it's a stat I saw. But let's say that that's undercounting and it's actually 100 million, right? Yeah. 100 million out of seven point something billion people in the world. Like this shit doesn't matter to anybody, yeah. right? Yet, now it's 100 million people who happen to be in the developed world mostly, right? And happen to also control the media and narrative and you know, all that kind of stuff. So if there was 100 million people who were using this stuff, let's say 40 million of them are US-based in technology, et cetera, that's probably the 40 million I would want to be into this stuff. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's just so small in terms of adoption yeah. that uh, you know I think everyone who is in quote unquote in crypto, right? Uh, you're just in the weeds. You think everybody cares. Uh, you heard some guy on the street talk about it, right? So you're like, oh, everyone knows about this. And then you're like, actually, nobody there, does. There is a bias that humans have towards assuming that other people are more like them than they actually are. And you, 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 you go to like a wealthy school or something like that and ask the kids, well, what percent of cookies do you think are uh, Pepperidge Farm? And they'll say, oh, like 30% of all cookies sold are Pepperidge Farm. And there's this natural just- What, what, what is it, do you know? Oh, it's like less than 1%. It's yeah. what, incredibly is, is Oreos up there? I'm sure Oreo has like a 2% share or something right. like that. But yeah, I mean, it, like you, you tend to way overemphasize uh, behavior that is like what your own experience is like. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you have a tendency to assume that a lot of people actually care about this stuff. That's true. Uh, last question for real, and then we got to go. Okay. Um, I might start asking everybody this. How long do you dunk an Oreo in milk? Are you like a two or three second kind of guy, or are you like a 10 to 12 second? You really like Oreos. Are they I, your sponsor? Not, not really. What's, no, not, <laughs> what's not, going on Not here? really, but I, I, just thought, I just thought about it. Like as a kid, yeah. I used to always tell everybody eight seconds. Like that's I, perfect. I held it in the milk until it started to fall apart. Oh man, that's, you ruined them. You were one of those yeah, people. Yeah, I, I trying to get as much of the milk to go up as far as possible to where I was holding it. So I got maximum I'm, milk in I'm there. I'm gonna use the Oreo question as a way to filter out the psychopaths. <laughs> there you go. Um, you can't eat crypto, perfect. That's how uh, the live stream, that's the last comment somebody said. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. This is a ton of fun. Uh, we will have to uh, do this again in the future so you give us another update. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you guys listening to that great episode. Before we go, remember to go visit zenledger.io slash off the chain. Zenledger is the best crypto accounting software available. If you had investment losses in 2018, you may be able to save up to $3,000 on your income taxes using Zenledger. Simply enter your transactions into their easy to use software, get completed tax forms, ready to be imported into TurboTax and reviewed with your CPA and sent to the IRS. That's visit zenledger.io slash off the chain, no spaces or dashes, just straight zenledger.io slash off the chain and you get 20% off your tax forms for 2018. Thank me later. I'm sure a lot of you have used Kayak to find the best flight. Total's kind of like Kayak, but it don't find you no flights. It helps you find liquidity on decentralized exchanges and it optimally routes your trades for execution. So Kayak, you find flights. Total, they help you find liquidity. We should get Kayak on it for this spot that I'm providing them, but Total instead is our advertiser and you should go visit total.com slash pomp. Again, that's total.com slash pomp and let them know that I sent you. Tell them you love their product. Take a screenshot, tweet it at me. I'll drop you some fire emojis and then we'll all be happy. So total.com slash pomp. Hey everyone, pomp here. 
If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.